Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Happy 2022. This is a good, this is my first time I've been able to greet you with that this morning. Uh, so thankful for all of you here, all of you joining online. I was one of the online people last week. Uh, we, we came in uh, from some travel out of town and were able to join online amidst the, the snow of last weekend. And that, that was a great thing. I'm thankful for, for Pastor Tom uh, changing gears because our teaching schedule has changed three times in the last two weeks uh, for this first couple weeks. And so we've been shifting in real time due to various things. I'm just thankful for for him and thankful for our team who's able to do that. Um, we're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning. So I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Um, Matt, Matt said it right. The, the reason why we have budgets and the reason why we have ministries and the reason why we uh, invest money in a facility in order to have like a place to meet in warmth in the auditorium and uh, comfort for people throughout this facility is really to make disciples. It's to build the kingdom of God, and that's God's invitation to each one of us today. And I, I always love to see how God does this in so many different ways throughout the course of a lifetime, the course of a year even, even the course of a week. Um, I heard from a mom in our church um, recently, this past week, and she said that her, her son came home and was asking spiritual questions about who God is and what Jesus did. And, and through a conversation with her and then a conversation with, with his grandpa, um, he put his faith and his trust in Jesus last week. And I went, absolutely. You know, so exciting to see young people and not young people, or not as young people, I guess, in that category, uh, come to faith and grow in their trust and grow in their walk. And I imagine... He, even in this room, we've got some people who are very, you're very new in your faith, and bless the Lord for that. We've got some people who've been walking with Jesus for several years, and you're still learning what it means to walk after Jesus. Bless the Lord for that. We've got some people who've been walking here with Jesus for so many years and have learned by experience in real life that God is faithful, even when we struggle with, God, what are you doing in my life? We want to be a church that equips and builds disciples who build and equip disciples. That, that, that's what we want to do. And, and that mission comes from Jesus himself. In, in the latter part of um, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says it this way. He tells his disciples, the people gathered around, he says, I, I want you to go into all the earth, right? They're gathered in Jerusalem. They're, they're right in their area of Jerusalem right there, near that in the Mount of Olives. And he says, I want you to go into all the world. In other words, he says, I don't want you to stay here. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. All right, that's the active thing that they're to be doing. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing, that's one of the ways that you make disciples. Baptizing and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I love it though, is because at the end of this portion of Jesus' ministry here on earth, he says, but don't worry, even though I'm going away, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. We serve a God who didn't just come and leave. He came and he left us with himself. He's the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He, 
He's the God who took up residence and tabernacled amongst us. And he lives in you and I by the power of the Holy Spirit today. And one of the very important things for us to always constantly keep before us is this truth that God walks with each one of us. And he wants to help us become disciples so that we can help make disciples of all the nations. There's a couple of... um, when we talk about making disciples, uh, there's some barriers we have to this, right? Uh, one of the biggest barriers I've found, at least in, in part of my walk, is an issue of identity. Um, it's an issue of identity. I- identity is um, how we think about who we are in light of who God is. See, when we talk about identity, it breaks up into two categories. What is my view of God And what is my view of myself? God designed us to have a right identity of who we are in his sight. And um, this morning, um, we're going to just do a series of two messages, this week and next week, uh, from the book of Colossians. And here's the point I want you to get this morning. Uh, Before God calls us to the world, he calls us to himself. Right? Before God calls us to the world, he calls us to himself. You could put it this way. Uh, the, the way to walk out in its fullest form, being a disciple of Jesus, is to have a right view of God and a right view of yourself. Because when those two things align and we come to God for everything we need, we walk not in our own power, we walk in his. We, we walk not to do our own mission, we walk to do his before God calls us to the world, he calls us to himself. I was in a class earlier this week uh, through Moody Seminary. I've got a couple classes left, and I had a class this week with Dr. Crawford Lortz. And um, it was about leadership and Christian leadership. And one of the things that kept coming home and coming home and coming home is that I have to restore a proper view of God in my life. There's a lot of things that we call awesome, Right? Man, that food was awesome. That, that, that movie was awesome. Or that music was awesome. One of the things God has been reminding me is there is one thing, one person who is awesome. One person who, who should take our breath away. Who should make us stop in our tracks because he is holy, holy, holy. And that God who is awesome, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is the great I am, has come to put meaning and value and purpose within his people so that we become people amidst all of our breaking and our failures who become remolded and reshaped by God for serving God. In Colossians chapter 1, let me get there really quickly. In Colossians chapter 1, one of the things that Paul is doing is he is putting God on display. He says this in the first couple verses, verse 4, look, well, let's start at verse 3. He says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. He says, you have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It's bearing fruit and it's growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. In this introductory blessing, Paul grounds everything that he's going to say on one thing, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. And notice what he says. He says that that you have this hope in the message of truth. And if you don't know what the message of truth is, he says the gospel that has come to you. The gospel didn't come just because people went looking for it. It came as a revelation of God through his son, Jesus. And it says that this gospel that has come to you, it says it is bearing fruit. Now notice he does not say you are bearing fruit. He says it is bearing fruit. The idea is this. It's kind of like what Jesus says in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants to underscore that the gospel is what brings fruit in our lives for the glory of God. Before we can go and do anything in partnership with God, we first have to come to God because it's through God we have everything we need. He says it is bearing fruit and it is growing. But lest we think that human interaction with the gospel is unimportant, he says this in verse 7. He says, you learn this from Epaphras. Our dearly loved fellow slave or servant. He is a faithful servant of the Messiah on your behalf. And he has told us about your love in the spirit. Paul says, you learn this from Epaphras, who is a faithful servant. And he's basically saying this, that while faithful people carry on the gospel, it's the message of truth working in them that is bearing fruit. In other words, it's God's work in you and in me that bears fruit for the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Paul says that this gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the center of the gospel is Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1, you don't have to go there. Paul tells us that those who are called by God, that for those who are called by God, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Paul's message of preaching and what he called all disciples to, what he calls you and I to as followers of Jesus is this is to proclaim Christ crucified and to walk in the hope and the power of the gospel of God because Jesus alone is our life, our hope, and our salvation. Before God calls us to the world, he calls us to himself because if we don't start with a daily active walk with Jesus, we miss everything God wants to do in the fullness of his power and his grace. We make it our aim to proclaim this gospel here at first regularly as we gather. And the gospel, you know, there's a short, form, a short form of it in this. And this is like the essence of the gospel that Jesus came and he died and he rose again to pay for your and my sins to make us right with the Father. But I always like to think of that and remember that in light of the broader context of Scripture, right? We, um, as a church family, we've encouraged you to jump into Um, reading through scripture this year, not just to read it, but to get to know God better through it. And I, I love going back to those early pages in Genesis because it reminds me of how God created and the intention and, and the, um, 
the purpose that he had. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says a couple of verses later that he made this and it was good. And he made this and it was good. And he made this and it was good. And he comes to day six and he creates mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. He created them as his image bearers. He created them as people to steward and to reflect his heart and his purposes for the world. And he created them for a relationship with him, unstained by sin. And so here you have, in the beginning of the scripture, you have them gathered in a garden and they're walking and they're engaging with God in a meaningful relationship. And then we read, you know, so there's like creation. And then we read in Genesis 3 this past week that something deeply life-changing happens. The man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they choose to rebel against God. And in rebellion, what rebellion is this? They basically say, God, I don't want to do what you've called me to do. I want to be you. It's not, I, I, it's not that they want to be like him in the sense of um, they want to be his image bearer. It's that they actually want to have the same plane and authority as God. And so um, they rebel against God. They, they create a mutiny against God. One writer puts it that way. I love that word mutiny because it describes the rebellious heart that they have towards the good that God created all around them. Now, God made it possible for them to do this, but they chose to do this. And every one of us since then has been born into a world and our lives have been marked by this fall. We can see it all around us and we can see it in us personally, intentionally, right? I mean, Goodness gracious, the number of times that each one of us has sinned and offended God is astronomical. I remember talking to a dear saint many years ago within our church, and she said this, she said, you know, the longer I walk with God, and she was probably 80 years plus at this point, she says, the longer I walk with God, the more I recognize how much of my life God wants to renew and help me walk in a different way. Because I do things that are more focused on me and not focused on God. It's this idea of rebellion, mutiny against God. But God, even in these first three chapters, he doesn't just stop it there. He doesn't say, you've sinned against me, no more, done. In fact, he sets to make it right. Genesis 3.16 talks about how he will crush the head of the serpent. This great messianic prophecy that reminds us that God is not finished with sin. Now, now God, after the sin, which broke God's heart, he drives Adam and Eve out of the garden because where there's sin, there's a break in this relationship and fellowship with him. He drives them out of the garden. They realize that they are naked and that they have shame. You know, before they were naked and didn't have shame. Now they're naked and they have shame. So God kills an animal for them and he gives them these skins in order to cover themselves. And by doing this, the first death in the world has begun. And this image of sin causes death begins. Sin causes death and this begins. But God creates a way. He doesn't just leave humanity on its own, rather through the course of Genesis, and we read about Abraham, and we've read about Isaac, and we just started re reading Jacob's story this weekend. And these are faulty men whom God makes a covenant with. They covenant with God, and God 
covenants with them because he wants to be in relationship with them. We'll read about Israel. We'll read about Israel's unfaithfulness. We'll read about God's faithfulness to Israel. All the while, God is going to do something to bring about redemption, right? God doesn't just create and let everything go after this rebellion. He says, no, I'm going to step into this, and I'm going to make a way for there to be made rightness between me and humanity. And that's through his son, Jesus, the gospel. Jesus died and rose again so we can have life in his name. But that's not even the end. Like that, that, that would be enough, right? That's not the end. The end of the scripture, which we'll get to eventually. We're going to study Daniel Revelation this year. We'll be reading Revelation come next December together as a church. It says in the latter part of Revelation, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will be their God. They will be his people. An almighty God will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Neither will there be no more sorrow, no pain, because the old order of things has been passed away, and it says that God will make everything new. And in a world that's broken by sin and by the effects of sin through literal physical death and through illness and through harming one another and all these things, God will set those things right. Amen? And until then, we long and we groan and we wait for that day, but God has not left us to ourselves He gives us his spirit because what God created in the garden where he established relationship, not just perfectness, he established relationship with him. What he established there, he wants to have with me and you today. He invites us into that. And there's an active part that we play in engaging in this relationship with him. There's the longer form picture of the gospel It's good to remember in light of the whole. Paul goes from this thanksgiving in the initial verses of Colossians to say this in verses 9 through 11. He says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul's prayer for these Colossian believers is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that they would know what God wants to do in their life, which presumes that he believes God will reveal what what God wants them to do in their life. He's praying that for them, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. What I want you to see is it's not about knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's about knowledge so that we can grow and into everything God wants us to become and everything God wants us to do. It's not knowing about him. It's having this deep, personal, abiding relationship, this life that says, apart from you, God, I can do nothing. Or as David said this morning, my soul longs for you. It doesn't long just to do what's right. It longs for you. And in longing for you, I have the perfect wisdom and knowledge through the Holy Spirit to walk after you. Paul asks that they be filled with the knowledge of his will, and all wisdom and understanding, so that, for the purpose of, that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And here's the result of being filled with the knowledge of his will. Number one, they bear fruit in every good work. All right? The the fruit that comes from our lives for the kingdom is not something that we do of our own strength. It comes from going to God and saying, God, what do you want me to do? 
How do you want me to live? What do you want my life to be marked by and to be about? It bears fruit in every good work. It grows in the knowledge of God. Not only that, verse 11 says it's strengthened, being strengthened, this continual strengthening with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have endurance and patience. I don't know about you, but there's some days I just struggle with endurance and patience. It's like, God, how am I going to get through the end of this day? Well, be filled with the knowledge of God's will and one of the fruits of God's spirit working in me and in you is that I have great endurance and patience for everything God places before me to do. Not only that, verse 11 says, joyfully, verse 12 then says, giving thanks to God the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. Do you notice what God calls the people of God here? He calls them saints. You're a saint. Saint in in the idea of this word means a, a holy one. One who is set apart. One who's been given an identity that is not of their own, it's of God. My friends, when he looks at you and me, the Father looks at us. And if we're in Christ, he doesn't look at our old ways of sin. He says, you're a saint. You're a saint. The purpose of Paul's prayer here well, verse 13, I don't want to leave this one off. He says, he has rescued us for the, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reason why that matters is because it reminds us we don't become saints because we are saints apart from God. We become saints because God has come to us. The purpose of Paul's prayer in these verses is he wants the believers to connect their faith in the Messiah Jesus with their lives. Right? Faith is not some sort of abstract thing. It's saying, God, I trust you in whatever you have said. And God, I want to be filled with the knowledge of your word and the knowledge of your will so that I can walk in that path. He wants them to connect their trust, their faith, this active belief that God alone is sufficient for them with their actual lives. And the knowledge of God's will means that he wants them to understand the heart of God for them. For them. He wants their desires to be driven by God's desires, not their own. He wants us to get to know who God is more intimately. Now, my wife and I have been married for now 15 years, uh, going on 16 in 2022. And um, one of the things I have learned over the course of our 15 years of marriage, plus an extra five and a half years of dating, is that my wife does not like coffee. You should have a gasp. Like, this is just big news. Um, because if you know me, like, I roast my own beans. It's a very, like, um, I, I, I love coffee, right? But if I sought, or if I seek to love my wife the way I enjoy things, if I were to come up to her and give her a big, hot, steaming cup of Ethiopian Yirga Chefe, for those of you who aren't coffee nerds, Coffee. <laughs> if I were to give that to her, she'd go, thank you. Ugh. She'd probably even try it just to humor me because she's that kind and gracious. But if I were to come up to her and I were to give her a cup of her favorite tea, she'd be like, now we're talking. What God wants to invite you and I into is a relationship where we don't love God the way we want to love God. We, lo we want to love God the way God wants to be loved. 
where, where we know him so intimately that we go, yeah, God, that would please your heart. God, would you help me walk that out in its greatest fullness? So there's a growing of relationship there. At the center of this transformation that Paul is describing in Colossians is the person of Jesus Christ. And stop for a moment and let's look how Paul describes him in Colossians chapter 2. It's almost as though Paul never wants the Colossians to ever, ever, ever forget of how awesome God is and how amazing Jesus is. But let's look at these verses. And would you just, just for a moment, as we read these, would, would you just allow your heart to take in the truth of them? Spirit, would you let us understand in greater measure this truth? Think about this with regard to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and earth. In other words, when Genesis says, and God spoke and it was, here we have Jesus, second member of the Godhead, speaking things into existence. Everything was created by him in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible. Think of all the things that we cannot see right now. We can see the effects of things like gravity, but we don't see it itself. At least I don't. I'm not that smart to think about all that kind of stuff. But just think, if I jump up, I come back down to the ground, and God spoke, and it was. The visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything in this world has been created for him, for the glory of God through his son, Jesus. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. This one just makes me stop because I think, of, of the incredible honor and privilege God has given elders and pastors to shepherd a congregation. It's an important function. It's a biblical function within the church, but I'm not the head of the church. <laughs> Jesus is. He is the head of the body, the church. At the end of the day, we all report to him. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. I love that. Just, he, he is the beginning. You know, he's, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Paul doesn't pull any stops. He doesn't say Jesus can be second place in your life. He says Jesus must be first place over your work, over your spouse, over your kids, over your hobbies. He must have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. This one should make us stop too, because this isn't just that, that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. It's that he is both human and he's also fully divine. I can't explain that. All I can do is say Jesus is in very nature God. He's not created. He's begotten. He's from beginning, meaning he exists forever. He is eternal, just like God is, because he is God. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Just think about that. The God who did all these things, he sought to reconcile. He didn't let it just 
go on and whatever happens now, he sought to reconcile, to make right the things that we could not make right by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verses like this should just cause us to stop and to worship. This isn't just academic. The God of the universe comes not only to make the wrong right, he comes to take up residence and to recreate, to make a new creation where there has been rebellion and sin against him. And it's his image bearers who become children of the king by faith in the gospel that he works. And this is just incredible. This brings incredible power to our lives, knowing that the God of the universe lives within us by his spirit so that we can walk after him. Think of the position that brings us. Like, like we are saints. We are, we are his children. We've, we, we've been made righteous through the working of God. Think of the honor and the responsibility and the hope that this brings to our life. I said earlier, a common barrier for us in making disciples and really even being disciples is our identity. This idea of our view of God and our view of ourselves. God didn't just give us a mission to go make disciples. He gave, him, he gave us himself through whom we can actually serve him and accomplish that mission. This is one of the many things that should drive us to a greater awe of God in our lives. Before God calls us to the world, he calls us to himself because he never wants us to forget whom we serve and how awesome he is. How awesome he is. For Paul, life is is all about Jesus. And Colossians goes to talk about those verses. And I just want to close by looking at a couple of verses really quick from Colossians chapter 3. Next week we'll look at some more verses from Colossians chapter 3. But I want to look at verses 1 through 4 of Colossians chapter 3. For Paul, life is all about Jesus. The cornerstone of the Christian is that they're no longer far from God. They're reconciled. They're part of a family. They're sons and daughters. They're saints of the Most High. They're priests. They're people who serve a higher calling than themselves. They're actually, we're even temples in whom the Holy Spirit resides and dwells. And Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 1 of Colossians. He says, so, yours might say if, you might say since, because of all of this, he says, you have been raised with the Messiah. In other words, he's saying, if his life has become yours, you're part of this family. And since you've been raised, I want you to, he writes to the Colossians, I want you to seek what is above, not what is below. And I think the first thing to seeking what is above is restoring the awe of God in our life. Restoring the awe of God in our life. I was reading a book this last week, and it's a book written by a pastor for pastors. And it's, it's really like a, um, it's a real, uh, not slap in the face, it's a real push into the reality of some of the challenges that pastors face. 
And one of the things he says, he's talking about the awe of God and how when pastors lose their awe of God, what we end up doing is we point people to someone else other than God. And he says, pastors, 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 you must restore the awe of God in your life. Now, what he then said, because he has helpful practices throughout all of this book, and he goes, I do not have a practice to tell you a five-step plan to restore your awe of God, except this. He says, go back to your father and say, God, I repent for not having the awe I should have before who you are. Because there's nothing that can restore my awe except him. My friends, there's nothing that can restore the awe of God in your life except going back to God and saying, God, I've lost the awe that I should have of who you are. God, would you, would you do a work in me? God, would you forgive me of putting other things first and making you second, third, fourth, fifth, or tenth? God, would you restore the awe of who you are in this world and in my life? We have to restore the awe of God in our lives. And God wants to restore that when we go back to him. We say, God, I've messed up. He says, seek what is above, not what is on the earth. He says in verse 2, he says, set your minds on what is above, not what is on the earth. That doesn't mean that what is on the earth doesn't matter. What it means is that he wants the Colossians to have a heavenward mindset in everything they do. God, what would please you here? God, what would bring you glory in my life rather than me glory in my life or them glory in my life or this nation or this purpose or this cause glory in this world? It's not that the here and now doesn't matter. It actually does because what he wants them to do is he, he wants them to seek what is above so that they bring what is above down to the earth. It's, it's kind of like what he teaches his disciples to pray. Um, he says at the end of the disciples' prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants them to have this, 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 this mind that is set, this mind that is focused, this mind that is keenly dialed in on God. What would please you today? God, how could I bring, um, bring glory to your name by what you've called and asked me to do? He says, seek or set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. And then he says, for you have died. Now, he's not talking to people whose actual bodies have died. He's talking to people who once walked in the death and the rebellion against God, and who their old way of living has died, and they've become new creations in Christ. We're going to celebrate baptisms uh, sometime in the next couple weeks here. I can't remember the date. Um, and what we say oftentimes is buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. My friends, when you come to faith and trust in Jesus, he recreates your spirit. Actually, he gives you a new spirit. He doesn't just recreate it. He says the old is gone. The, the, the one that has, that has been darkened by sin and rebellion against me, I have removed that and I've placed my spirit within you to cause you to walk after me. It's, it's part of one of the promises he gives back in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36. He wants them to know constantly, your old way of living has died. Your spirit has been made alive 
by the Spirit of the God who brings life. And God gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us himself to seal our redemption in him. And the Holy Spirit plays an important part in our life. Like he, he gives uh, illumination of truth to us. He shows us our sin. He gives us power to walk after God. And he says this then. Um, he says, for you've died and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. A person who is in Christ is a new creation, which means a new creation does not become an old creation. A person in Christ whose hope is in him alone, who believes my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. This is a person who is forever marked by God's saving work, and they cannot lose their salvation because they've been made new, and you can't make old that which has been made new by God. This person, life is hidden with the Messiah in God. But notice what he says in verse 4. He says, when the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, he could have said, when the Messiah is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. He could have said that. That would have been a true statement. But notice this, this little phrase he puts in there. When the Messiah, who is your life, not who will be your life, not who was your life, but who is your life. Paul is driving this point home. God is your life. One writer puts it this way. He says, when Paul's writing to the Philippians, he says it this way. For to me, living is Christ. Years before, when he writes to the Galatians, he had said, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. As Paul saw it to Christians, Christ is the most important thing in life. More, he is your life. What describes your life today? What describes the reason you wake up, the reason you go to bed, the reason you go to work, the reason you go to school, the reason you engage with friends, the reason you engage with your family? What God wants that reason to be, what he has purposed that reason to be, is for Christ to be your and my life. For Christ to be our life. What sets the values and the beliefs that you hold dear? What gives you hope for the days ahead? From where do you receive everything you and I need for life and godliness? Christ. Christ alone. This past week I mentioned I was in a class online at Moody Theological Seminary with with Dr. Loritz, and um, we were looking at an issue of brokenness and woundedness in, in the course of leadership. And brokenness, Dr. Loritz defined as a conscious core awareness that I need God in everything I do. In fact, he went on to state that God never uses anything over the long haul that comes to him together. Let me say that again. God never uses anything over the long haul that comes to him together. You see, we have to have a right view of who God is because the reality is, is that you and I don't have it all together, right? That's a Genesis 1, 2, 
1 and 2 thing where God makes everything and it was very good. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world and we don't have things all together. And we could go around here, we could tell stories of how we don't have all things together, right? We don't need to do that right now. But here's the amazing thing. We are not born perfect or without sin. We, we, we are born into a wounded world and we feel this effect of sin upon our life. But when God redeems us, he begins doing a work of a craftsman, building up pieces or picking up pieces of our wounds, um, which he uses for his glory. He fashions them in a different way that we can't fashion them ourselves to give purpose and meaning even amidst tragedy because Christ is our life. Um, Things like failed marriages, things like stubborn sin issues that we struggle with every single day, pride in our perfection or our successes, challenges we have with raising kids and doing things right and then doing things wrong and all this you know, roller coaster of things. Lost jobs and, and broken relationships at work, broken trust, false accusations, even declining health. We all experience woundedness in this world. And we tend to operate, or at least I tend to operate, as though I am self-sufficient, but frankly, we are not. We are not. Now, I love Dr. Lord's um, description of brokenness because it's different than woundedness. Woundedness is something every one of us here has. We can, when we stay in a state of woundedness, however, wounded, woundedness or being wounded by, by, um, by like walking in this woundedness means that we begin to be dominated by what has happened in our lives or the things that we struggle with. Be- being wounded is looking at the wound more than looking at the one who wants to take that wound and bring healing and bring hope and bring truth. Everyone has been wounded, but not everyone is broken. Brokenness does not equal woundedness. Brokenness, I mentioned, he defined as a conscious core awareness that I need God in all things. Here's what happens. When sin comes into the world, we take a cracked pot, or we take a pot. I bought this yesterday. They actually sell these in the middle of winter. They looked at me kind of weird. When sin comes into the world, what happens, though, is it goes like this. And we're left with shattered pieces. We try to take these pieces. We try to pick them up. We try to refashion them. We try to put them all together. And when we do this without God, what we end up with is a pile of wounds. You felt them. I felt them. Brokenness is the process that begins God's healing, redeeming work. Not every wound is made right this side of eternity. But what God begins to do is he begins to refashion, to reshape, to remold that which is broken to make it whole again. Our part in this work 
is to live with this conscious core awareness that God, I need you in all things. In fact, Christ, I need you to be my life because without Christ being my life, I walk in the shattered pieces of my woundedness. But God, who is rich in mercy, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me with all of your wounds and let me begin to do the work of a potter to refashion, to reshape, and to give purpose and identity for your life. I'm probably not going to plant anything in this this year, but maybe it's worth a shot. But what God wants to do, he wants to say, you know, when you come to me, in my grace, I meet your wound, and I begin to refashion you into the person I've designed and created you to be. Brokenness is a conscious core awareness that I need God in everything. Christ being our life does not mean that our lives are perfect, right? The, the full form and perfection of the pot will not be fully, completely revealed until we have a, a new body in the new heavens and the new earth. When God says, I make everything new in the end of the text. But it doesn't mean that our lives are perfect. It means that amidst the imperfections, we choose to set our minds and our hearts upon the truth of the awesome God whom we serve with a conscious core awareness that we need him in all things. The end result of choosing brokenness is that you and I care more about God's glory than we do our wounds. Where are you at today? Where is something that is broken and shattered in your life? And God says, will you give that to me? Will you trust me in that? And by the way, will you trust me tomorrow in that? And will you trust me tomorrow, the next day after that, in that? Friends, there are some things, even this morning, like I'm singing and and I'm being reminded of things in my life that I go, God, that, that, that doesn't honor you. God, why am I struggling with that? And I'm like singing at the same time. It's this conscious core, conscious core awareness that, God, I need you in this. And trusting and believing that he will show up and he will make beauty from the cracks. Because he will. Our Father and our King, we thank you so much that you restore in us an image and identity that you created long ago in humanity. God, we, we want to not just be your image bearers. Every, every person is an image bearer, but we want to be your sons and daughters who walk in the fullness of that image. And God, we need you to help us do that today. God, before you call us to the world, you call us to yourself. And God, that call is every single day in multiple moments of our days. God, would you remind us that we need you now, this conscious core awareness that, that without Christ being our life, we begin to pick up things that we don't need to. We begin to shoulder burdens that you never intended us to. God, would you remind us here in the middle of our wound, that you meet us in brokenness. For the glory of God, 
Because it's through that brokenness that you show to the world your glory, your majesty, and the work that you do and have done through your son. God, we trust you in this work. We commit ourselves to you in this work. And God, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That you would give us today our sufficient needs for today. That you would forgive us as we've forgiven others. That you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. Because God, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Together we say, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at 